Welcome to the March of History, episode 37, the Battle of Sabbath, which is also known as the Battle of the Sombre. I am your host, Trevor Furness, and we left off in last episode with me telling you that Caesar had a number of Belgae tribes surrender quite easily to him, really without much of a fight, but that the next tribe that he would face would be a tribe that had no intention of surrendering. That tribe is known as the Nervii. And Caesar in his commentary says of the Nervii, quote, They permitted no merchants within their borders. They did not allow the import of wine and other luxury goods because they believed such things enfeebled their spirit and weakened their courage. They were fierce men, and very brave, who reproached and condemned the other Belgae for surrendering to the Roman people and casting aside their ancestral courage. They declared that they would send no envoys and accept no peace terms. End quote. So this is a hard-headed tribe that has no intention of surrendering. Their plan is to defeat Rome or die trying. And there's something about this attitude that's very Roman. This is a, an approach that Rome would always take, or almost always take, to all of its wars, that Rome would win or be destroyed in trying to win against the enemy. Surrender was never an option. And I'm thinking that this is probably why Caesar chose to share this with his audience that would have appreciated this kind of mentality towards war. Now that was the Nervii's mentality coming into this war, and let me tell you a little bit about their style, their fighting style. The Nervii only use infantry. They don't use any cavalry at all, which is very unusual because the rest of the Gauls have strong cavalry forces. It's what they use to raid their neighbors. It's great for hit-and-run raids, and it's what most of Gaul uses. And like I've said in the past, all of Caesar's cavalry come from Gaul and our Gallic allied cavalry. But the Nervi are different. They don't use any cavalry at all, only infantry, again, much like Rome. And Caesar says that it was this way with the Nervi, meaning that they only used infantry since ancient times, which I think is a great line because you got to love how even ancient Romans had older times that they thought of as ancient times. Now, despite only using infantry, the Nervii still had to fight off cavalry raids from their neighbors, and they did this by creating natural walls in their forests that Caesar describes in his commentaries. Caesar says, quote, They would do this by cutting into trees and bending them down. Because of the large number of branches sticking out horizontally, all tangled up with brambles and thorns, they ensured that these hedges provided them with a fortification the size of a wall. Not only was it impossible to penetrate this barrier, it was even impossible to see through it. End quote. So they're kind of like these large hedges made of tree branches and brambles and thorns that are, I mean, I'm sure if you spend a good part of your day chopping at them, maybe you could get through them. That's just a guess on my part. But for an army like Caesar's that's trying to move quick or for a cavalry army of a rival Gallic tribe that's trying to do a hit and run raid, they really slow you down. And they're so thick with tree branches and thorns and brambles that you can't even see through them. So it really affects the visibility of the invading army as well. Which you got to imagine is, is part of the plan of the Nervii to obstruct the visibility, to confuse the enemy, to make almost a maze in these deep forests that the Nervii know well since they were born there and explored this area from the time they were small children, but that the enemy would be very confused from. So let's get back to Julius Caesar now. He knows that the Nervii still stand, and he knows that they're gathering a coalition against him in Rome. Now Caesar has the rest of Belgica on the ropes. They're surrendering left and right to him. Even the biggest tribes, like the Belgae, have just surrendered with almost no fight. So Caesar wants to make sure it stays that way, so he moves quickly to confront the Nervii. And in three days, Caesar is only 10 miles from the River Sabus, or the River Sambre. I've seen both, so most of the books I have say the River Sambre, and then some that I have say it's actually the River Sabus, and that the River Sambre was falsely identified as, as the river where the battle happened, and it was actually the Sabus River. I don't know, you know, which is correct, but, you know, I've, I've seen a lot say that 
the river Sabbath is correct, so we're going to go with that. So throughout this podcast, I will be calling it the Sabbath River or the River Sabbath. If you prefer Sombre, I apologize, but this is what we're going to go with. And this quick movement speed is despite the hedge walls that the Romans must go through and around when in the Nervi territory. And it's possible that the Nervii's hedges were actually funneling the Romans into an area that the Nervii wanted to face them at. And I should mention, if you want to find where this battle happened on a map, like with many ancient battles, it's not certain, but the Sabus River in ancient times is likely the modern-day Sel River, that's S-E-L-L-E, in northern France, and this battle happened around the area of... Malbouge in northern France. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> so Malbouge is spelled M-A-U-B-E-U-G-E. So if you have Google Maps in front of you, you can pull that up and just get a feel for the area that we're in and uh, what area on the map this battle happens at. Anyway, as Caesar is marching towards this river, his intelligence network is hard at work. He has spies feeding him information and his... Cavalry scouts are capturing prisoners and interrogating them. And through the interrogation of these prisoners and through the spies, Caesar finds out that the Nervii are actually waiting on the far bank of this river for him. So Caesar's 10 miles out from the river, he's walking towards it with his army, and they find out that the Nervii are waiting on the opposite bank of the river for him, waiting to either surprise him or confront him or stop him from crossing the river. He doesn't exactly know what all he knows is that they're waiting there for him. And there are two other tribes with the Nervii, known as the Atrobates and the Viromandui. And according to the Remi, that's the tribe that had defected from the Belgae to join Caesar's side, these tribes could muster up around 75,000 men combined, all three of them. And Caesar says that the Nervii actually had an additional 10,000 more in this battle, so probably 85,000 total is what Caesar and the Remi are claiming. Now, in all of the secondary sources I've read, they say that all of these numbers are probably exaggerated, which you'll notice there's a theme here. And this is true of all the ancient battles. The sources always say that the numbers are probably exaggerated by the ancient authors that thought nothing of just upping the numbers by a few you know, 10,000 or, or more. <laughs> we don't really know how much they're exaggerated by. Also, all the numbers that the Remi had given were how many men had gathered for the original Belgae host. Caesar had already dispersed them, so it's likely that not all of them have then gathered in this new coalition, and so it's probably smaller than what the Remi said. That being said, it's still a large host of men facing Caesar. It still outnumbers the Romans. The Romans have about thirty to 40,000 legionaries, plus several thousand cavalry, and then several thousand archers, slingers, and light infantry, and the Nervii were significantly larger than that as far as their numbers. Now, all three of these Belgic tribes, meaning the Nervii, the Atrobates, and the Vero Mandui, are all waiting on a fourth tribe to join their coalition. This is a tribe known as the Aduatucci, and they are on their way. In the meantime, these tribes have put all of their women, children, and elderly people deep into some forest marshes where they believe the Romans can't get to them. They believe that these marshes, if you don't know them and if you don't know the paths, are impenetrable, especially to a marching army, and therefore they hid all of their vulnerable people in these marshes deep in the woods, and they stayed to fight Caesar on their home territory. So Caesar learns a lot of this, right? He, he learns that this, these tribes have formed a coalition against him. He learns that they're waiting on the far bank of the river Sabbath for him. And so what he does is he sends out scouts and centurions ahead of his troops to find a strong location for them to build a camp on so that when they arrive at this river, they can quickly build a camp, uh, get it in place. And, and Roman camps are more like fortresses, so that would help defend them against this large hostile army. But Caesar's not the only one with spies. You see, there's many Belgae and other Gauls who have surrendered following Caesar's victories, and they are following Caesar's camp. And some of these people following are claimed as allies, in name at least. Some are hostages Caesar has taken from the various tribes, and he needs to keep them with him as his camp moves. 
And so these people have officially surrendered or are officially allies, but any chance they get, they will help their fellow countrymen when they can, and they are observing the patterns of Caesar's army. They see when they break camp, how they march, what the formation is like, where they're vulnerable, and at nighttime, they would sneak away from the Roman camp, and they would go tell the Nervii spies or Nervii scouts, or I don't know if they would go directly to the Nervii camp, or if they would meet people from the Nervii in the woods somewhere around the Roman camp, and they would tell them all this information. And what they told the Nervii is that each legion forms separately and has responsibility for its own baggage train. So what that means is that the legions, as they march, basically have eight separate sections. The legion leading in front, and the baggage train behind, then a legion, then a baggage train. And they believe, the Nervii, that once the first legion of the march reaches the, the site that the Romans have picked out for a camp, this would be the perfect time for an ambush. Because the first legion would be weighed down with their heavy packs, they would not be ready to fight, and they would be outnumbered, and meanwhile, the other legions would be too far back guarding their own baggage trains to help that first legion. And if they did try to run forward to help the lead legion, they would have carts and servants and pack animals between them and the assaulted legion. It would be very difficult for them to get through all this and to get up to where the legion who's being attacked is and to form up in a cohesive unit and help defend them. The Nervii then believe it would be very easy to take the heavy baggage train of the first legion after it's dead, and uh, then that the other legions, you know, once they caught up and saw all this carnage, would be too afraid to resist. That's what the Nervii think anyway. And this, to me, doesn't sound anything like the Roman army that I know. You know, the Roman army giving up after one legion gets wiped out? Clearly, they have not studied the Roman mentality in war. The Romans never give up, especially not from just one legion being wiped out. Now, as I've said, Caesar knows that they're waiting on the other side of the river for him, but he does not know about their plan to ambush him. This is all unknown to him. He says that he finds this out after the battle happens. But since he knows that they are coming up to where the enemy is, he changes his formation. Not because he knows about the ambush, but just because he says it's his habit to always change the formation of the army's march if they know that there's an enemy within the region. So his new plan is to send the cavalry and the slingers and the archers ahead of the army to scout and to you know screen. And then he will personally march with six experienced legions with light kit towards the new camp. Behind them would go all of the heavy baggage of all the legions, and the two newly raised legions, who are basically like the rookie legions, will bring up the rear. So the scouts and centurions that Caesar had sent ahead find a good location for the camp. It's on top of a hill by the river, on Caesar's side of the Sabbath River, and it's a strong defensive position. But here's the thing. There is another hill directly across the river. And the top of this hill is heavily wooded. And inside the woods on top of this hill, it is full with the Nervi army and all of their allies waiting for the ambush. And the river at this point, of, of this time of year, is not a very deep river. It's only three feet deep this time of year, and it's relatively easy to cross. And when the Romans got there, or at least when the scouts got there, they could also see cavalry posts downriver, but nothing significant. So they looked around, they saw some cavalry hanging about from the Nervii, but they really didn't see any significant forces. So they come back to Caesar, they tell him that they found a good spot, it's a strong defensive position. Yes, there's some Nervii in the area, but there's really not that many. So the Roman army moves out, begin to march again towards the Sabbath River, and the cavalry and the slingers and the archers go ahead again. And of course, they're much faster than the heavy infantry. And they reach the river well ahead of the legions. And they actually cross over and begin to engage with the cavalry that they see across the river. Now, the Belgic cavalry, remember, so the, Nerv the Nervii don't have any cavalry, but their allies do. And so the Belgic cavalry really didn't seem to want to actually fight. Because they kept using hit-and-run tactics, they would engage and then run back and retreat into the woods on top of their hill, and then charge out and attack again. And the Roman troops, for their part, didn't pursue the Belgic cavalry because they were afraid of being led into an ambush, which is 100% true what would have happened if they had gone into those woods. They would have found out the hard way that the entire Nervii coalition army is waiting in those woods, and <laughs> they would have been ambushed. 
And while these cavalry skirmishes are happening, the six Roman legions reach the hill that the Roman scouts had picked out as a good defensive position. And this hill, remember, is directly across the river from where the Nervii are hidden in their hill or in the woods on top of their hill. And uh, Adrian Goldsworthy in his book Caesar Life of a Colossus says that the, the legions would have laid down their packs, laid down their pilum, which are their spears, their helmets and shields, and piled them nearby. Their armor would have been kept on, which would have been the normal Roman practice, and then they would have begun digging to build the camp. And interestingly, Goldsworthy actually says that Napoleon Bonaparte, who was a big studier of history, a big student of history, and loved to read the Caesar's Gallic Wars, and Napoleon Bonaparte, who was no slouch of a general himself, actually criticized Caesar here at this point for not protecting his troops better as they built the camp. Because you, you can remember back that when he was fighting Ariovistus and the Germans, and he built their second camp, he had the first two lines fend off the Germans as the third line built the camp. Here, Caesar does not do this. He just sets all of the six legions to build in the camp. And, you know, you can, we, we can get hypothetical about what his thoughts were. Maybe he thought that there wasn't that much of an enemy in the area and it was better to get all six legions constructing the, the camp as quickly as possible because if you have six legions building it, it'll go much quicker. Maybe he thought that this was a much bigger camp than the one that he had built against the Germans because he had to have eight legions inside of it. Who knows what Caesar was thinking, but he did not create any sort of guard outside of the cavalry and the slingers and the archers to defend his legions as they begin to construct this camp. Now the Nervii, for their part, stay hidden in their forest on top of their hill, though they are formed up for battle. This is a very disciplined move because they've seen the Romans, the Romans have come into camp and they've, they're building their camp, and yet... The Nervii, who are all in battle order, stay put because they haven't received the signal yet. That's the sign of a disciplined army. So clearly they've seen at this point that their intelligence was wrong. Their intelligence said that the Romans would arrive one legion at a time with a supply train behind them, and they've just seen six legions arrive. This is not what they were told would happen. But the signal that they're waiting for and the, the plan that they had was to jump out and surprise the Romans when they see the Roman heavy baggage train come into view. So that's what they're waiting for. And finally, as the legionaries are building their camp, the Nervii see the Roman heavy baggage come into view, and that's the cue they've been waiting for. The Nervii army and their allies rush out from their hilltop forest as fast as they can, and I love Caesar's description of this part because he makes the Nervii coalition seem almost like an army of Olympic track stars. And maybe they were. Maybe they were very fast because they had to compensate for the fact that they had no cavalry. Maybe they trained a lot in running on their feet. I don't know, but let me read you what Caesar says. Quote, they, meaning the Nervii and their allies, suddenly rushed out in full force and launched an attack on our cavalry, which was easily repulsed and scattered. The enemy then ran at astonishing speed down to the river, and so seemed, almost at one and the same moment, to be near the woods, then in the river, now already upon us. With similar speed, they made their way up the hill to our camp and attacked the men who were working on the fortifications. End quote. So as you can see from Caesar's commentaries, these Nervii don't have horses, but they're fast on their feet. They're really fast. It really does make sense in a way. Like I said, they, they never had the ability to rely on cavalry, so they had to be fast on their feet, and they had to be quick, and so they're showing that in this battle. And like Caesar said in that quote, the Nervii basically get down the hill, they get across the river, and they get up to the Roman hill before the Romans even know what hit them. And absolute chaos ensues. The Romans are in no way prepared to fend off this attack, Caesar included. And Adrian Goldsworthy makes the point in his book that most ancient battles, it would take hours and hours of organizing to get the lines of each army lined up in the perfect order and organized and prepared for battle. And in, here in this battle, it's, it's very different. There is no time to organize. Everybody just fights where they are. There is no organized line of battle and organized strategy, at least in the Roman part ahead of time. They're just fighting for their lives. Now Caesar, for his part, does his best to take control of the situation. 
And Caesar says in the commentaries, quote, Caesar had to see to everything at once. The flag must be unfurled. This was the signal to stand to arms. The trumpet sounded. The soldiers must be recalled from working on the defenses, and all those who had gone some way off in search of material for the earthworks had to be ordered back to camp. He must draw up his battle line, encourage the men, give the signal. There was too little time. The enemy pressed on so fast to complete these arrangements. End quote. So you know these Nervii are running lightning fast if someone who acts as fast and thinks as fast as Julius Caesar is saying that there wasn't enough time for him to prepare his army. And in that quote, you can really tell that Caesar is scrambling. This is a very bad situation for him and for the Romans. But there are some good things to the Romans that they have going for them. One, these are six veteran legions. That means they know what to do even without orders. Number two is that Caesar had forbidden all of the officers from leaving the defense works or their legions until the camp was completely completed. So this is good. This means that the camp is unfinished, yes, but that all of the officers are still present and in their appointed locations. And that dovetails into the third good thing that the Romans have on their side. They have Caesar as their commander, and he is very competent. And orders like telling the officers to stay with the legions until they finish the camp are very good orders that are going to help the Romans in this battle. Now, Caesar says that all these officers realized that there was no time to wait for orders from Caesar, and they all know what to do anyway. So they take the initiative, and they begin issuing their own orders to the legions. Now, that doesn't mean that Caesar isn't doing anything himself. He gives the most essential orders that he can think of to the legions that he has time for, and then he literally runs down to where the legions are gathering to meet the assault. The Nervii are running up the hill towards the Romans and haven't quite reached them yet. But there is no organized Roman line. It's confusion. And when Caesar runs down towards the legions, he's not even sure what legion he's heading towards. He heads towards the left flank, and as he says it, to see where luck would take him. After all, Caesar's luck was famous. And he reaches the left flank, and he sees there is the 10th legion, his favorite legion, the legion that he thinks is the most brave and the most disciplined and the best fighting legion. And Caesar gives them a pep talk. He bolsters their spirits. He tells them not to forget their great reputation for bravery. He tells them, don't lose your nerve now and resist the assault with courage. And by this time, the Nervii are within spear and arrow range from the 10th Legion, and Caesar gives them the signal for battle. The 10th Legion throws their pilum and charges into the thick of the enemy. Caesar, for his part, then leaves the 10th Legion, and he heads straight for the right flank of the Roman army. And by the time he gets there, they're already fighting with the enemy. And Caesar says of the right flank when he got there, quote, when Caesar moved to the other side, meaning the right flank, to give encouragement, he found the men already fighting. Everything happened so quickly, and the enemy were so determined to fight that there was no time for our, our men to fit on their emblems or even to put on helmets and take the covers from their shields. Wherever each man ended up, after stopping work on the defenses and whichever signal he saw first, there he took his stand, so as not to waste fighting time in looking for his comrades. End quote. So just to explain part of that quote for you, the Romans had leather covers on their shields that they would keep on the shield when they're not being used to preserve them from the elements. And the Romans were ambushed so quickly by the Nervii and their allies that they had no time to even take these covers off their shields and had no time to put their helmets on. They're just fighting, they're just drawing their swords and fighting for their lives. And they're not even waiting to see where their unit is and where the soldiers that they normally fight with are. They're just joining up with the nearest standard and fighting with whoever the nearest officer is at hand. And this is a testament to their experience as veterans that they knew to do this and the training that Caesar had given them during the winter and during the years that he's been their commander. Now Caesar makes a point to say that the six Roman veteran legions are not lined up in any kind of military formation. They are fighting in different directions where terrain permits, basically. And add to that the massive hedge walls, which apparently are even around this hill. There's these massive hedge walls that are obstructing their movements to join each other and obstructing their vision of the battle. 
And he says, because of these hedge walls and because of the spread outness of the legions and how they're not in one cohesive line, it's impossible for one man to coordinate all of the commands of these different legions. And it's impossible for one person to see what is happening on all parts of the battlefield because of the hedges blocking their vision. And therefore, it's impossible for one person to know where reinforcements are needed, which line needs to move back, which line needs to spread out, which line needs to push forward. And because of all this, the battle progresses differently in different areas of the battlefield. Now, remember back to the Roman cavalry and slingers and archers who were skirmishing with the enemy cavalry and how suddenly the Nervii plunge out of these woods and charge towards the Roman camp. Well, this scared off the slingers and the archers and the cavalry because you know, they ran in some direction and then tried to return to the Roman camp later and saw that the Nervii and their allies were between them and the legions and they got scared off by that and they ran away in, in every different direction. So they're no help at all in this battle. Now, here's how the battle progresses. On the left flank, that's where the 9th and 10th legions are. They are actually facing the Atrebates. That's one of the tribes allied to the Nervii. And you'll remember me saying that the 10th and also the 9th legion were able to throw their pilum, that's the spear that they keep with them, before engaging. Remember, Caesar gave that order. And the Atrebates, by the time they get to these Romans, are tired because they have run down a hill from their hill, they have crossed a three-foot-deep river, and they have ran up the Roman hill all at a breakneck speed to try to surprise the Romans. And before they even get to the Romans, they're hit with a volley of spears, which you can imagine does not feel good. And the Romans have the high ground on top of all this. So yes, they've ambushed the Romans, but they're not doing so well. You know, maybe they're in good shape, but they're not, as good, they're not in as good a shape as the Nervii are. And so the 9th and 10th legion are able to push them quickly back to the River Sabbath. There, the Atrebates try to cross to get away from the Romans, but they get kind of bottlenecked because, yes, it's a river that you can walk across, but, I mean, three feet deep is, is still pretty high, right? So you're not going to get across it quickly. So they're kind of bottlenecked trying to cross this river, and then the 9th and 10th legion advance and catch up to them at this moment and begin just butchering the Atrebates, absolutely butchering them on the bank of this river. And in Caesar's own words, quote, Our men caught them up, drew their swords, and slaughtered many of them. End quote. Now the Atrebates eventually escape across the river, at least the ones who didn't get cut down in, in this bottleneck. But the 9th and 10th Legion are feeling good now. You know, they've, they feel that they have these guys on their ropes. So they pursue with no hesitation across the river, and the Atrebates make a stand on their hill, the hill that they had run out of with the forest on it. And now they have the high ground, right? That's such a big part of ancient warfare is the terrain that you're fighting on. But the 9th and 10th Legion, as I said, are feeling impetuous. So even though they're going to have a disadvantage uh, fighting on the lower ground, they feel they have these guys on the ropes and they want to get the knockout blow. So they advance to meet the Atrebates and battle ensues and the 9th and 10th Legions are victorious and drive them off. Now, back to the main battle at the Roman camp, because the other legions are still fighting. The 9th and 10th had a lot of success, but the other legions are not quite as successful. Now, in the center of this battle are fighting the 11th and the 8th legions, and they are fighting the Vero Mandui. And like the 9th and 10th, they also begin to win, and they push back the Vero Mandui back to the riverbank. And on the riverbank, the Vero Mandui make a stand, and battle continues against the 11th and the 8th legions. So you can see the left and the center of the Roman army are advancing, but they're not advancing as a single unit. They're becoming spread out and separated from each other. This is very dangerous in ancient warfare. Now there's two more Roman legions still fighting in the Roman camp. These are the legions on the right flank where Caesar is. They are the 12th and the 7th legion, and they are facing the Nervii, Remember, the Nervii are the fiercest and the most aggressive and most savage and most warlike of the Belgae, who are the most savage, aggressive, and warlike of all of Gaul, right? So they are some tough opponents. And also remember that when Caesar says he arrived there, the fighting had already begun. And now that the legions are spread out and not in some kind of line around the camp, the Nervii are taking advantage of this. They're being led by their supreme commander, Bodugnatus. And the Nervii form up into a dense 
compact column and march towards the Roman center and the Roman left. Remember, these are the two positions that have been abandoned now because the Romans have pushed the Nervii allies forward, and so now the, the Roman right is still staying in place defending the camp, and the Roman left and the Roman center have nobody defending it. And from the center and the left, the Nervii begin to surround the 12th and the 7th from the left and wrap around them, which is, I mean, that's deadly in ancient warfare. If you can outflank your enemy, if you can get to the side of them, and especially if you can get behind them, which is near impossible, but it has been done, then that's just game over for any army. And some of the Nervii begin to march for higher ground inside the camp to surround the legions even more and to get to that behind the legion position. So they're actually inside the Roman camp now. Because it's a little bit hard to picture, but what I imagine is that the Roman legions, the 12th and 7th, are on the side of this hill, fighting, defending the camp. And because the other legions have pushed forward, the Nervii are able to just go around them on the left-hand side into the camp and try to find a way to get behind them. Now, as all this is happening, and before the Nervii even get into the Roman camp, the orderlies of the Roman army, which are the people who would do the laundry, who would maybe do the blacksmithing, who would do all of the things an army needs to function outside of fighting, they call them in the commentaries orderlies. I've seen in Goldsworthy books, he calls them that they were the army slaves. I don't know if they were a mixture of servants and slaves or free people and slaves, I'm not sure which, but they just call them the orderlies in, in the commentaries. Basically, they're camp followers and they're all the people that make the camp function. But they see that the Roman left and center are winning the battle and pushing the enemy back across the river, in, in the center's case, to the bank of the river. And so they decide to leave the camp in search of plunder. Which I have to imagine means that they are searching through dead bodies for gold and for valuable objects, maybe for valuable weapons that they can sell and bring back to the camp to be used for later. But as they're doing this, as they're looking for some loot, they turn back and they see the Nervii surrounding the 12th and the 7th Legion. They see the Nervii inside the Roman camp and the orderlies panic and they run away in all different directions. I imagine they try to hide in the woods in the, in, around that area to try to hide from the enemy army who they think is about to win this battle. Now stick with me here because this may seem confusing, but there's a reason why. This battle is absolute chaos. And at the same moment that these orderlies start fleeing in every direction, Caesar says a, quote, frightened cry, end quote, went up from the main baggage train, which is now approaching. And that Roman soldiers of the 12th and 7th legions, where Caesar is right now on the right flank, start to flee in every direction. And it's with this chaotic scene, with the orderlies fleeing in every direction, with the 7th and 12th Legion, they have soldiers in the back of the army who are getting hit with missiles, they're starting to run away, the Nervii are in the Roman camp. This is when an allied force of Gallic cavalry called the Treveri arrive on the scene. The Treveri were sent from their homeland to come help the Romans as allies. They were very vaunted for their warlike skills and their skills as cavalry. And they show up on the scene and this is what they see, right? They see the Nervii inside the Roman camp. They see the 12th and the 7th Legion being surrounded and not looking so hot. They see the camp orderlies running in all directions. They see probably the cavalry and the archers and the slingers running in different directions too. This does not look good. And Caesar tells us this story in the commentaries. He says, quote, All this served to terrify the cavalry of the Treveri, who have a reputation for outstanding bravery among the Gauls. They had been sent out by their people as reinforcements and had come to Caesar. When, however, they saw the enemy armies swarming all over our camp, our legions hard-pressed on the point of being surrounded, our orderlies, cavalry, slingers, and Numidians spread out, scattered, fleeing in all directions, then they abandoned hope for our cause and made their way home. The Romans were beaten, they announced their fellow citizens. The Romans were overcome. The Nervii had taken possession of their camp and their baggage. End quote. 
So the Treveri actually see this whole scene and decide, oh man, it's over for the Romans. They're done for. Let's go home. And they go home to their fellow citizens and they just make an announcement that, yeah, hey, the Romans were defeated. The the Nervii were inside their camp. They had taken their heavy baggage. It's done for them. The Nervii won. Now, when Caesar arrives on the right flank, it's very interesting because in the commentaries, he actually tells the story from his perspective. He says, quote, After his words of encouragement to the 10th, Caesar made his way to the right flank. There he saw that his soldiers were hard-pressed. Because their standards were crowded together, the men of the 12th were packed so close that they obstructed one another in the fighting. All the centurions of the 4th cohort were dead, and the standard-bearer was slain. The standard lost. All but a few centurions from the rest of the cohorts were wounded or dead. Among the casualties was a senior centurion called Publius Sextius Bacillus, a man of immense courage, who was suffering from numerous serious wounds. He could no longer stand upright, and the rest of the men were weakening. Some of those at the rear were leaving the battle and retreating to avoid missiles, while the enemy did not slacken but pressed on up the hill in front and continued to attack on both flanks. Caesar realized that the outcome rested on a knife edge. There was no hope of reinforcements. End quote. This is a very dire situation for the Romans. There are even legionaries, even veteran legions are beginning to flee in all directions. The Nervii are coming into the Roman camp. They're surrounding the two legions, the allied cavalry, the slingers, the archers are fleeing in every direction. The orderlies are fleeing in every direction. The allied cavalry, the Treveri, show up on the scene, give up the Romans for dead, and just leave and go home and pronounce them as dead. If you were the commander of this army, what would you do? Put yourself in Caesar's shoes here. This is enough anxiety to make anybody break down and panic. So what would you do? Try to be honest with yourself. Would you be shocked into inaction? I imagine a lot of people would just freeze at this point. Or would you try to rally your troops as best you could? Try to encourage them, maybe give them orders on where to go. Or would you decide that you just want to live another day to see your family, to live life, to see your friends again, and just hop on a horse and get the hell out of there and abandon your army? Now, that's obviously not the honorable option, and and nobody wants to admit that they would do that, but this has happened throughout history, so you know it's, it's obviously an option some people would take. Well, we know what Caesar does, because in the commentaries he tells us. So let me read that for you. Just to recap, Caesar had said, quote, Caesar realized that the outcome rested on a knife edge. There was no hope of reinforcements. So he snatched a shield from one of the soldiers at the rear. He had come out without his own shield and made his way to the front line. There he called upon the centurions by name and encouraged the men, ordering them to advance in open ranks so that they could use their swords more easily. His coming gave the men fresh hope and heartened them. Each one was eager of his own accord to do well in his commander's sight, even at great personal risk, and the enemy assault was checked a little." End quote. So Caesar grabs up a shield himself, and he joins the front line of the army. We have to assume that he had a sword on him already. And he's sending a message to his soldiers by doing this. He will stand with them, and if necessary, he will die with them. He isn't going anywhere, and they are in this together. And even in the midst of battle, even as he's... St- on the front lines with a shield and a sword, and he's fighting. He never says that he's fighting. He never calls out attention to himself doing wonderful deeds of of actual physical combat, but he kind of leaves it to our imagination. But even as he's doing this, he's yelling out centurions' names. He knows all, first of all, he knows all their names, right? And as somebody that struggles with names myself, I find that amazing that in the heat of battle, Caesar's recognizing all these officers. He's calling on them by name to encourage them, you know, he, he's not frazzled at all. This guy's a cool customer. And the ordinary soldiers he encourages with words and with his example. And all of this, Caesar calling on them by name, being with the troops in the front line, it boosts the morale of the officers and of the ordinary soldiers, and they want to impress their beloved general. 
You know, he's there watching and fighting with them. If there's ever a time to risk your life to try to do something brave and impress somebody, it's now when the general is standing right next to you fighting with you, right? So all of the troops begin to fight harder, and this helps, but they're still in a dire situation. Even Caesar says this helps to to stave off the defeat a little, but, I mean, they're still being surrounded on all sides, and the Nervii are tough fighters. Now, in this part of the narrative, even though Caesar says that he picks up a shield and goes to the front line, he keeps the story focused firmly on his officers and on the ordinary legionaries, and he really makes them the heroes of this whole story. And like I said, he gives no detail of himself actually fighting and striking down enemies, but in a battle this contested, when the general gets on the front line, you think about how tempting of a target that is for the enemy. I can't imagine he was on the front line without having to actually fight. But I just, uh, the reason I bring this up again is that I think it says a lot about Caesar as a person that he focuses his narrative on the legionaries and on the officers rather than himself. You know, there's many other generals in history that if they did this, the next few pages in the commentaries would be filled with how I struck down this person and and blocked this sword thrust and et cetera, et cetera. Caesar doesn't do that. He still focuses on the legionaries. And I think I've said a lot in this podcast that Caesar's legionaries absolutely are devoted to him and love him. But it's also true that Caesar loves his legionaries and he loves them right back and is just as devoted to them as they are to him. But the battle still continues, and Caesar continues to issue orders and to encourage his men to try to help them. Quote, Caesar now saw that the 7th Legion too, which had taken a position beside the 12th, was being hard-pressed by the enemy. He ordered the military tribunes to close their legions up gradually, wheel about, and attack the enemy. By this means, since they could all support one another and need not fear being attacked by the enemy from behind, they began to resist with greater daring and to fight more bravely. End quote. Now, while this is happening, while Caesar is fighting with his men and giving them orders to, to you know, better allow them to fight and to not get in each other's ways, to uh, better resist the enemy, The baggage train finishes coming up and the 13th and 14th legion who are behind them acting as the rear guard, those are the two rookie legions at the back of the baggage train, come into sight. And the enemy can see them now. And they see what's happening. They see the enemy inside the Roman camp. They see two legions with their commander fighting for their lives. And the... 13th and 14th legion of course rush ahead to try to help them and save them from this fate meanwhile we flash back to the 9th and 10th legion they were the ones on the left flank where caesar first went they pushed the enemy across the river and they actually get into the enemy camp on the you know hill across the river from caesar's hill that was in the forest and they are under the command of a man named titus labianus that is the right hand man of caesar And Labianus, standing on this wooded hill on the opposite side of the riverbank, can see Caesar and the two legions fighting for their lives and being surrounded by the enemy. So he sends back of his own accord the 10th legion as a reinforcement to help the Romans there. And the 10th legion, I mean, it must have been clear from on top of the hill... But once they get going, they seem to get a little bit lost on their way to the battle. And they actually have to stop and ask fleeing cavalry and fleeing orderlies for directions as to where the battle was happening. And from talking to these fleeing cavalry and orderlies, they learn how hard-pressed the two other legions are and how hard-pressed their beloved commander Caesar is. And then they, they race forward at a breakneck speed to try to get to the battle, to try to save these legions, and to try to save Caesar. And when these three new legions arrive on the scene, the battle is transformed completely. Caesar says in the commentaries, quote, Their arrival transformed our fortunes, so much so that our men, even those who lay wounded, supported themselves on their shields and began the fight afresh. The orderlies now observed that it was the Nervii who were afraid, and, weaponless as they were, they charged upon the armed enemy. So too the cavalry tried to wipe out the shame of its desertion by fighting everywhere in an attempt to outdo the legionaries. End quote. I love this scene in the commentaries. 
So with the reinforcements, the Romans start winning the battle, and the orderlies, remember the camp followers, the people that do the laundry, that probably fix the armor, that do everything that an army needs that doesn't involve fighting, are probably hiding in the woods and, and watching this battle from a distance, and they see the reinforcements come, and you know they get excited that, look, the Nervii are afraid now, now the Romans are winning, and they get so excited that even without having any weapons, they actually charge into the battle to fight the Nervii with their bare hands and to help the legionaries. And I have to imagine that this has to be a huge bonding experience in the army. You know, you better believe that those orderlies, if they weren't appreciated before this battle, they are definitely appreciated after this battle. You know, this, this bonding experience where even the orderlies are jumping into the fray with no weapons at all and fighting the, the Nervii that have gotten into the camp and, and joining the legionaries and risking their lives right alongside them. And the cavalry, too, joins the fight, and they're trying to redeem themselves from running away earlier in the story. And Caesar goes on to say, quote, The enemy, however, even at this critical moment, showed such determination in their bravery that when those in the front rank had fallen, the men behind them stood upon the slain and continued the fight from on top of the corpses. When they were overthrown, the pile of bodies grew higher, while the survivors used the heap as a vantage point for throwing missiles at our men, or catching their spears and throwing them back. Not without good reason were they judged to be men of enormous bravery, for they had dared to cross a very wide river, climb its steep banks, and advance on extremely difficult ground. The Nervii's courage had made light of these obstacles." End quote. So according to Caesar there, the Nervii fight to the death, just as they claim that they would. They even climb onto piles of corpses, of their own corpses, to get a better fighting stance against the Romans, to get a higher ground against the Romans. And they stand, and then as these pile of bodies grow higher and higher, the Nervii climb up onto them and they throw spears and they throw other th missiles at the Romans from on top of these piles of bodies. And they even stand on top of these piles of bodies and they catch Roman spears thrown at them and throw them back at the Romans. This was a foe that Rome could respect. Caesar says in the commentaries, quote, When the battle was over, the name and the fighting strength of the Nervii were almost wiped out. And Caesar claims that of their original army of 60,000 men, 500 were capable of active service after this battle. And of the Nervii's 600 senators, only three remained. Because their senators would actually fight in battle with them. How about that for a concept for today? Now Plutarch, for his part, says of this whole scene very concisely, quote, But now, under the influence of Caesar's bold example, they fought a battle, as the phrase is, of more than human courage. And yet, with their utmost efforts, they were not able to drive the enemy out of the field, but cut them down fighting in their defense. And he also gives similar numbers to what Caesar said of, of the Nervii casualties. Now, Adrian Goldsworthy brings up in his book, Caesar Life of a Colossus, that we know for a fact that these numbers of the Nervii dead and slain and of you know their fighting force that's, that's now been whittled down to nothing are actually not accurate because Goldsworthy says that Caesar himself contradicts these numbers later in the Gallic commentaries and the Nervii come back to fight again. So, <laughs> you know, as always, take ancient numbers for what they're worth, but it's, it's an excellent story Caesar tells. And I think the numbers maybe aren't always 100% accurate, but uh, I would imagine the broad sweep of events is accurate. Now, the fighting force of the Nervii may or may not be dead, but they still have many more Nervii left. These are the women and children and elderly that have fled to the deep swamps inside the deep forest the Nervii live in. And the elders, along with the women and the children in the deep swamps, soon hear of this defeat, and they send envoys to surrender to Caesar. And Caesar decides to accept, and he shows mercy to them, and he orders them to remain in their territory, and he commands their neighbors to leave them be and not raid them, because it, it was always a potential threat to any Gallic tribe surrendering that, hey, now we're weak, we've just been defeated, 
our neighbors are going to come and just eat us alive. And Caesar would always tell them, no, 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 don't worry. I'm going to send orders to all of your neighbors, letting them know that you're now under protection of Rome because you've surrendered to Rome. And if they attack you, they'll have Rome to pay you. So that's it for this episode. Bit of a longer episode, but I wanted to fit the entire battle into one episode. It's a, it's a great, excellent battle. And next episode, stay tuned because we are going to finish off the war with the Belgae. Caesar ends up getting huge applause for this in Rome. The people go wild about it. The Senate votes, votes him a great feast. And uh, I'll explain to you why this was so exciting to the Romans. And we'll go into a little bit about what's been happening in Rome while Caesar's been gone and, and what Caesar's going to get up to in the winter here. So uh, definitely tune into next episode of The March of History. And don't forget to follow our Instagram at The March of History. Our Twitter is at March underscore history. Our Facebook page you can find by searching The March of History. Our email is themarchofhistory at gmail.com if you want to send any feedback or just reach out just to talk. You know, on all these platforms, we're always happy to have you guys reach out, to leave comments. We want to hear back from our audience, and, and I want to know, you know what you guys like in certain episodes, what I can do more of, you know, how I can improve the show. So definitely you know, keep in touch with us and reach out to us on the social medias. And if you have just five seconds, please leave a review on the podcast app store for Apple. That helps the podcast to grow so much. Make sure you share the podcast with other people that love history or want to learn about history. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications on future episodes. That's it. Go out and uh, enjoy your day. And, and hopefully you can take something good away from this uh an exciting story about Julius Caesar picking up a shield and joining his armies on the front line. That's it for the March of History. Until next time.